from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Cindy Isabek from the Washington Post. Hi, this is Beth Reinhardt at the Washington Post. Lori Artani over at the Post. I'm. This is Post Reports. I'm Alexis Diao. It's Wednesday, March 31st. Today, a ride along the U.S.-Mexico border, where people are arriving in large numbers. And the sound on Mars. Yeah, those footpaths are well-traveled. Mm-hmm. See where the grass goes down. We are in Rincón del Diablo, a patch of federal land that runs along the Rio Grande River in Mission, Texas. Our Elise Hernandez covers immigration for The Post. And along these dusty roads drives Hidalgo County Constable Roque Vela. See, last time when we came down here, it was dark, so you, you can see a little bit, you'll be able to see what we call one village, and you'll see the abandoned houses there. People used to live there back in the day. Back here? Mm-hmm. There's nothing out here. <laughs> like, how would they get water? <laughs> the river. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, duh, makes sense. <laughs> For two decades, he's been a law enforcer in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. And during that time, as part of his regular policing duties, he does overtime shifts, helping Border Patrol gather up the folks that they find along the river who have crossed seeking, in some cases, asylum. Several nights a week, Roque Vela is out there in the brush, in his truck, waiting as families come up from the riverbank and surrender to him. His job here is to quickly get the names, ages, sex, and nationalities of each one of these people. And to escort them through the very windy roads where it's very easy to get lost and take them to the Border Patrol Processing Center nearby, a couple miles away, where Border Patrol has been, in recent days, overwhelmed by the number of people who have been coming to the United States. And what was that like, doing a ride-along along the border? So I'm I'm fairly new myself to the national immigration beat. So for me, it was it was startling, right, to to see all of a sudden out of the darkness, a group of people come out of the brush and you know surrender or present themselves to law enforcement. 
And that first group you know, startles you enough and, and, and Roque would go and do the you know census, take down everyone's information. Then all of a sudden you would see more people and more people come out of the woods and out of the darkness. And soon, you know, a group of 12 maybe would just grow to about 100 people. And this happened a couple times that I went on this ride along with Roque. It's you learn a lot. You get sort of insight into why people are coming, but it's also incredibly emotional and and taxing because you see their faces, a lot of them, especially if they're like mothers with young children that are shaking, if it's cold or wet, they're scared and nervous. There's sort of this mixture of relief. I'm finally on the U.S. side, but also uncertainty because I don't know what's going to happen to me at this point and whether this individual in a uniform is there to help me or hurt me. And tell me about some of the people that you spoke to while you were riding along with the constable. So I spoke to about three dozen different migrants on the several days that I was riding along. One of the first groups that I spoke to was a group of mothers that when we first came upon them, they, they started running into the brush. They were they, they got mm. spooked. Oh, they are running. That doesn't happen all the time, does it? Yeah, give me the mic that's on the tape. Roque got on his like sort of megaphone and told them in Spanish, "No corren, no corren. Estamos aquí para ayudar. Don't run. We're we're here to help." And in talking to those women, they they had been in Tucson. Actually, they had crossed the border once in Tucson with their young children. Their kids were probably between the ages of like three and nine. Jasmine, ¿qué le trajo aquí a los Estados Unidos? Bueno, pues yo vengo buscando más que todo asilo político, ya que mi país hay mucha delincuencia. Hace dos años mataron a mi esposo. Y la verdad tengo mucho miedo. And over there, they had been returned to Mexico under Title 42, which is this public health order that's supposed to be temporary, but that was initiated on the Trump administration that basically expels everyone who tries to cross the border. And so they had been so disappointed and so disillusioned at having been returned to Mexico. They had heard from other migrants as well as smugglers that if they tried to cross, you know, a thousand miles east in the Rio Grande Valley, that they would have more of a chance of being able to get through. And by getting through, meaning, you know, being released into the interior of the country by by Border Patrol. So then what does happen to I mean, for example, like what did happen to this group of mothers that ran away? into the brush. I don't actually know what happened to these women. I gave them my my, you know, my cell phone number in case any of them would be able to reach out to me. Some families have been able to get through and yet 
you know, families who have children who are eight, nine, ten in some cases are being sent back to Reynosa specifically because the other side of the border of of Mission and the Azadua's Bridge, which is an incredibly dangerous place and is now once again sort of filling up with a lot of families who are unsure how to navigate the politics or the policy right now at, at the border. And when you talk to them, you know, they'll they'll tell you horrific stories. One of these women was carrying a photocopy of what she said was her murdered husband. And you could see it's a it's literally a picture of his lifeless body on the ground with blood splattered around his head. I talked to another uh, one of those mothers who her husband had also been killed by gang violence in her country in Guatemala. No, pues yo desde que mataron a mi esposo eh, tenía planes, pero igual me quedé ahí tranquila, más sin embargo después empecé a recibir amenazas y fue por eso que decidí emigrar. So fueron las amenazas no de que haya sido, de que Biden había dicho que, que, no. que pues, respetaba más a los migrantes, no. no. Que ibas a venir. Sí. ¿Y usted qué dejas atrás en Guatemala? Mi mamá. She was traveling with her four-year-old and she hadn't left in the two years because she was afraid of leaving her mother alone in Guatemala. And so she had waited, but the threats became too much against her that she decided that now was the time that she needed to make her flight. And you hear this a lot, violence, opportunity, the hurricanes. There were many, many, many groups of folks from Honduras, which suffered two hurricanes back to back last fall and are still reeling from the effects of that disaster. For example, I met a 15-year-old girl who had traveled with her mother at first, initially, from Colón, Honduras, because the back wall of their house had collapsed with the flooding and the rains from the hurricanes. They had reached um, northern Mexico. They were attacked by cartels. Her mother was able to distract their assailants and told her daughter to run. So the girl ran. She ran to the river, was able to board a raft and came over by herself. This is a child who never intended to make this journey on her own across the river, but because of the circumstances and how dangerous conditions are for migrants that are making this journey, she was left alone. And eventually she was able to join another group on the U.S. side. She was lost for a while in this wildlife refuge that I that I was driving around in with Roque. But, I mean, she, she was in tears and just disconsolate. You know, she actually pulled me aside and told me she wanted to talk to me about what had happened to her. She has no idea what happened to her mother. Oh, God. Actually, is the current U.S. policy for how to deal with migrants arriving at the U.S. border? I, I ask this in part because it feels like it's changed so many times in the last four, four and a half years. The truth is the border is closed right now to most people. Most single adults, most families with older children are arriving and being turned back 
to Mexico within a couple of hours. I met several people who had tried to cross several times because they're not getting through. The people who are being released into the interior of the United States so far have been families with small children and children who arrive at the border by themselves. It's interesting to to hear you talk about seeing that firsthand because you'll hear a lot of politicians lambasting the Biden administration for for especially, you know, situations like this where, you know, they claim that children are being sent to the border alone. And it just seems like such a contentious topic right now on Capitol Hill. Is Congress trying to do you know, anything to alleviate the pressure at the border other than these, you know, tours that that they're doing? You know, the border and immigration has been a political cudgel for both parties for several years now, for decades even. This is not new. This happened under the Obama administration. This happened under the Trump administration. I mean, we can point to all kinds of like reasons and say one is is more impactful than the other. But the truth is that this is extremely complicated. Yes, migrants respond to things that are happening in the U.S. because, you know, smugglers are part of this ecosystem. They respond to what the Biden administration says when they say, oh, we're going to have more humane approach. Oh, we're going to stop deportation in the first 100 days. Like those things matter and do have an impact. But the fact of the matter is that people come because they have a need, you know, and that need might be economic. That need might be emotional and, and having wanting to reunite with family, that need might be protection and asylum. So none of this is is new. The, the, the issue is Congress as as a body has been unable to pass any kind of, you know, bill. They've been, you know, efforts, right? But they have been unable to pass bills that would sort of fundamentally change the dynamics of what's of the way that we respond when migrants reach, you know, U.S. borders. And there are some who say that, you know, Biden should have anticipated it. There are others who say that this is all part of pent up demand from under the Trump administration when, you know, it was very difficult for a lot of people. But, you know, there are distinctions between the way these administrations from Obama to Trump to Biden have dealt with it. But the problem and its root is still the same. And to be clear, the lack of reform, the lack of sort of coming up with a comprehensive plan and on what to do is something that's extremely frustrating, something I hear all the time from folks who live in the border regions, who are leaders, whether they're, you know, congressional representatives, their local town mayors, or their neighbors who have riverfront property, right? What they would like to see is you know, their government respond to this, not in, in, in sort of a politically charged way, but in a practical way that looks at immigration, not from a deficit framework, but one of benefit. Right. Because, for example, the border regions need workers. There's a lot of agriculture in the workers. I had, you know, one local mayor tell me it would make sense to us to create something like what existed during the Bush years of a guest worker program to bring people in. Those are the kinds of things that hasn't happened in Congress for more than two decades now. After having spent several days on the border with Constable Vela, what 
do you think these conditions say about the state of U.S. immigration? Having spoken to migrants, having also been in touch with many people who were enrolled in Trump-era programs that kept them out of the country as well, I think you begin to wonder, like, what, what the ultimate aim here is for the United States. Like, is it to keep most people out of the United States? Is that what our immigration policy is? It's hard to understand basically just what the United States wants to do here with regards to immigration and how they want to do things differently or, or the same. Like, what is the ultimate message? Is it, you know, the Biden administration don't come? Well, to a person who is running from violence, to a person who is being persecuted by their government, for a person who cannot feed their children because their business was destroyed by a hurricane and they're getting no help, you know, from their internal government. For those people, for a child who might have lost a parent and or has a parent in the United States and can no longer feel like they can live their full lives in their countries, for the, those people, don't come is not going to stop them. Arlise Hernandez covers immigration for The Post. This story was produced by Lena Mohammed. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. And now, one more thing from producer Bishop Sand. February 18th, 162 million miles away, NASA's Perseverance rover landed on Mars. It was sent to find signs of ancient life and prepare for human missions, but it's also told us a lot about sound. A few weeks after it landed, the rover sent us the first audio recordings from the Red Planet. So to you, what does that sound like to you? That's a very interesting question. This is Timothy Layton. I'm professor of ultrasonics and underwater acoustics at the University of Southampton in the UK. 
my first guess might, that might be what we call wind noise, but I might be wrong. That's right. NASA says this is wind on Mars. It isn't sound. It's a pressure fluctuation. So they're exciting That's, to hear. Sorry, you yeah. wanted to say something? Yeah, yeah, I do. When I, so wind is really, this is kind of new to me. So wind really isn't a sound. It's just pressure. It's just a pressure fluctuation. Exactly. Huh. So that if, if I ask you, for example, to move your hand backwards and forward next to your ear, one ear will hear a, a, a kind of perhaps a fluttering. But the person near you won't, because this isn't a sound energy that travels. And to be acoustic, a sound has to travel from one place to another. This is simply about pressure fluctuations on a microphone because of the relative motion of the microphone and the surrounding atmosphere. Now, it, it's exciting. It's, it's, a, it's a triumph to pick that up, but it is not, you're not listening to the sound of the world itself because it's the microphone banging up against the atmosphere that you're listening to. You're not listening to a sound of that planet that travels. Now, if you put the microphone still and you, you know, you have still atmosphere, then you can start picking up information about the world. Uh, you might hear thunder. You might hear rock falls. You might hear the, the you know, the tires of the probe crunching on the ground. Th that's information. That's acoustics. That's sound that travels from a distant source to you. So when you hear a sound like this, I'm going to play this other sound for you right here. This is this is a this is a sound of the Perseverance rover um, driving around, driving around. Yeah. What does this make you feel when you hear this? Oh, it's intrigued. Like really sense of really very much intrigued. Yes. Why? Um. This is, this, this is the, this is, unlike the wind noise, this is something else. So what I want to know is, what is the, what is the source of the sound and how does it travel? So presumably the lander is moving around and the wheels are crunching the ground and it's perhaps hitting rocks. It might be opening veins and, and what have you. But of course, this is not a recording of sound on our planet. It's happening on a different planet with a different atmosphere. For Mars, it's a thin atmosphere made of carbon dioxide. This soaks up sound and slows it down. It, it, and it really throws off what you'd expect to hear when you're listening for wheels crushing rocks. Can I, can I illustrate with the voice? Because that's very exciting. Timothy has modeled what these effects would be on a voice. So I think this is a, 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 my son when he was smaller saying the word Mars on Earth. Mars. And then we take his voice and transform it to how it will sound on Mars. Mars. But Timothy went further on this and he modeled how this voice would sound on Mars if the microphone was just moved back 10 meters, which is about 11 yards. You have to listen to it very closely. So here it is. 
Okay, let's listen again. It's very, very quiet. The atmosphere would really soak up the sound. So the sound gets shifted by the medium it's traveling in. On Mars, things get muffled at small distances. And the slower sound speed makes a voice go from here to here. And what I find so fascinating about this is that I don't really know what to make of these sounds from the Perseverance rover. They kind of throw me off. You are, you are programmed to interpret in one particular way, with one set of assumptions. And if I was speaking on Mars and surviving, you would think I was about seven feet tall. And you wouldn't know why. You'd just say, that guy sounds tall. That's so interesting that the way that we evolved on Earth colors how we view sound on other planets. So even like a rock clattering on the ground will make us like, what is that? We'll think exactly. of it as a different thing. You, you, because, you know, we think of ourselves as visual creatures, but for most of our evolution, uh, half of the time it was night and you didn't have floodlights and you didn't have flashlights. You had your ears. And so you've evolved to interpret those sounds. And on another world, your brain is tricking you because it doesn't know about the density, the sound speed and the absorption of the atmosphere in another world. The Mars Perseverance rover will gather data for at least one Mars year. That's about 687 Earth days. Bishop Sand is an audio producer at The Post. Timothy Layton is a professor at the University of Southampton. The audio you heard in this piece is from NASA, and we'll put a link in our show notes where you can keep listening to the sound of Mars. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Rennie Svernofsky. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Alexis Diao. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.